0: Certain books in the New Testament feel like documentaries. Take the Gospels, for instance. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John contain first-hand accounts on the life of Christ. Written in narrative form, the Gospels flow easily from one story to the next. The last book in the Bible isn't like that. Revelation contains challenging and mysterious references. Well, today on Insight for Living, Chuck Swindoll helps us unravel some of the complexity as he continues his study in Revelation most of us would welcome some clarity on this book. Chuck titled today's message, The Curtain Rises, The Drama Begins.
1: Scripture, speaking of itself, tells us that the Word of God is alive and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And it is It is written so that it pierces to the division of the soul and spirit as well as the joints and the marrow. And it is, the Greek word is kritikos. We get our word critic from it, translated discerner. The word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No surgeon, no matter how skilled, no matter how High-tech the instruments she or he may use. No surgeon can do surgery on the soul. No surgeon can touch the spirit. God's word goes deeper than the most radical of surgeries. And no person is able to know the intention of the heart. God's word knows that as well. So when we open the scriptures to the first chapter of the last book of the Bible, We're turning not simply to ancient literature, we're turning to that which reveals us as we really are, tells us about ourselves, even things that are hard for us to admit to ourselves and certainly to others. And on occasion, it gets so deep and personal, it's like visiting our spirit, our souls. But it's so disarming the way it reads. John, for example, begins in this Section of scripture in Revelation 1, verse 9, I, John, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place here after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, Uh, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches.
0: You're listening to Insight for Living. To dig deeper into the book of Revelation with Chuck Swindoll, be sure to download his Searching the Scriptures guide by going to insight.org slash studies. And now the message from Chuck titled, The Curtain Rises, The Drama Begins.
1: It is easy to overlook how long ago the first century was. If you've traveled abroad, you've gone to the old country and you have seen places where they will, with a measurable pride, point out, this goes back to the 14th century. Or... In some places, they will say this dates back to the 7th or 6th century. If you ever have the privilege again to go to the Holy Land, you will see uh, wonderful sites where the dates take you back to the 3rd century. And in some cases, they have unearthed the 2nd. And in a few rare cases, they've gone down to the 1st century. Below the layers, all the strata, as the sands of time have poured in across history. And there, they will say, is a, is a first-century road. Or, or there is the, uh, what appears to be the wall that surrounded the city in the, in, in the first century. All these things make the, the writing of John the Apostle all the more remarkable just stop and think of the task he had to communicate with people of this generation i got some help this past week while reading one of my treasured volumes the complete idiots guide to the book of revelation <laughs> given to me by a former friend that <laughs> that really helped me see inside inside the thinking of what it must have been like to be in the first century communicating with the 21st. I quote, let's assume for a moment that John is is about to see some things that are still in our future. Send yourself 2,000 years backward in time and, and try to understand what your life would be like. This was still almost a century before the oldest known Maya monuments. Silkworms hadn't been introduced to China yet. The cutting edge of technology was alloyed metals. Although many people were thankful for the recent Roman adaptation of an invention they got from the Gauls. Soap. While the Romans were highly civilized for the time... With great roads and aqueducts and such, it would still be centuries before anyone would conceive of electricity. Cities were large enough, but the most impressive skyscrapers of, of that, that time would pale in comparison to today's. And weaponry had hardly gone beyond pointy things on the end of long sticks. Place yourself In that era. And then suppose you got a good look at at today's world. Using your first century comprehension and vocabulary, uh, how would you describe television? Uh, Flush toilets, cell phones, cars, tanks, missiles, helicopters. Helicopters. And all the rest, it would be hard enough to explain corn dogs and cotton candy, much less the complicated technology of our time. So as we go through this book, let's cut John some slack. I would love to read that to the critics of the book of the Revelation. Tough job. Sitting down and putting into language, not ours, But the common language of that day of writing, common Greek, the task assigned to to John to put incredible visions into words that even his own day to say nothing of 20 centuries later would understand was uh, quite a task. No small gig. This was something else. And don't forget, the man's been living on a tiny island for several years. You get funny (laughs) all alone on a tiny island, though some days that sounds like a wonderful place to be. (laughs) The South Aegean little six-by-ten island some 40 miles from the westernmost town of Miletus on today's modern Turkey soil Here he is, hearing the crashing of the waves and every day awakening to more of the water. I sometimes smile when I get to his visions of heaven, when I see that John has said rather early, and there will be no more sea. (laughs) I suppose even there you weary of the sea. Nevertheless, he faithfully obeys his orders, takes up a stylus, and from the get-go, begins his best to record under the Spirit's inspiration what he sees and what is and what is to come. The setting of the first vision occurs at the beginning of verse 9 where John introduces himself uh, in an almost amateur manner. I'm John. I'm, I'm, I'm John. Doesn't make us wait till the end of the book to know who wrote it. He tells us in the front end, I, John. And he doesn't attempt to pull rank. There's something authentically simple about his opening lines. "Uh, I'm your brother. Don't you like that? Here's an apostle who walked three and a half years with Christ here is the apostle who was one of the three closest. Here is the apostle who witnessed the transfiguration of the, of the living human Christ. Here is John, who is given revelation as no one else is given. And he simply says, I'm, I'm, I'm your brother. I'm, he's no attempt to impress. There's an there's a unspoken humility in the introduction of himself. Hi, I'm John. I'm a a brother. And then he goes on to identify with his readers by calling himself a fellow partaker. The the word, interesting word, has in mind the idea of co-sharer. Koinonia is a part of the word. Remember when we studied fellowship, koinos meaning common, uh, people who have things in common, or or, or they do things commonly together, uh, th- that's at the heart of the word partaker. I'm uh, sun koinonos. I am I am one with you in three areas. First, in tribulation. Flipsis is the word. It means uh, the pressure of life. It's translated often affliction. Used in Second Corinthians four, we are troubled on every side, yet not Distressed, we are perplexed, but not in despair. Under pressure. Uh, Here is the word again. We are together in this tribulation. Uh, By the way, that's why he was on Patmos, as we will see in a few moments. Sent there by Domitian. It's a wonder he wasn't killed. Domitian demanded the name deity. He required his subjects to call him Lord. And John, of all things, called another Lord. And because of that, he exiled him to Patmos to live in a penal colony and break rocks and live an isolated life. Hopefully, that would silence him forever. Silence him. Yeah. He just left us with the Gospel of John, three letters, and the book of Revelation. That not bad for a little time on an island. But he's a fellow. Sufferer, he's also a a co-sharer in the kingdom. He's in the company of the redeemed, if you will. Uh, the same King who rules over your life in Christ rules over his life, and in that sense, things equal to the same thing are equal to each other. And so he bows before the same Lord, anticipates the same coming as we who name the name of Christ in this generation. He's also a co-sharer. Please observe. In endurance, I won't overburden you with Greek words. But this one is colorful. Hupo mane, hupo means under, mane means to abide, maneo to abide under. It's used for a beast of burden that you load up with goods before a long trip, and the and the beast because it doesn't doesn't buckle at the knees is said to be a hupo mane beast. He abides under the load. Translated here. Uh, perseverance. I like the word endurance better. I'm a co-sharer in the endurance. But it was possible because all of these things were true in Jesus. See how he inserts that? In Jesus. A co-sharer in tribulation and the kingdom and endurance. All of the above in Jesus. Christ drew him and them together and them with us, giving suffering dignity and giving the kingdom a, a, a distinct flavor and, and providing the patience needed to endure. You know what impresses me, if I may insert this? Not a word of complaint. Not a bit of grousing. No bitterness. I'll be so glad when I'm off this island. It will be wonderful. Part of my Marine Corps responsibility during my days in the Corps were uh, spent on Okinawa, commonly called by the the rock. Among other non-profane things I could share with you, it was called the rock. And as soon as you got on the rock, the thing you talked about the most was when you're going to get off the rock. There's none of that here. There's none of that. And I mean, what, what kind of treatment is this, Lord? I, I, I walked with you. I served you. I took care of your mother when you died. I'm, I was the closest alongside Peter and, and James. And, and this is what I get? No. No, he's a co-sharer in these things. He was on the island called Patmos because, because, look at this, uh, of his unequivocal, faithful, uncompromising commitment to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus. I didn't didn't break under Domitian's threats. Some even suggest he was tortured by being burnt in oil. It's only tradition. We don't know for sure. But if so, that didn't turn him against the Lord Jesus. This is a man who has an undeterred resolve. He will be there till he dies. And it's because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And you know, folks, uh, John has no corner on this kind of life. How wonderful it is to come alongside believers in this generation. They're not all on the mission field, some of them in the business world, many of them keeping the home fires warm in the rearing of small children. Others living lives as single parents, some as aging Christians, alone and quietly, still standing for the things of, of the Lord. So don't, don't, don't hallow the name of John above any who would be in the family qualifying in the same way as John does. Suddenly, with the ending of the word Jesus, he says, I was in the spirit. He says that four times in the book of the Revelation. Some outline the book according to that statement, I was in the Spirit. It appears here and in 4.2 and 17.3 and over in 21 verse 10. So at each of those junctures, at unique points, he says, I was in the Spirit. And I take it, he is caught up in a vision directed by the Spirit of God. Maybe we could render it, "I, I, I had a vision, inspired with the Spirit. It was on the Lord's day. And there are some things he hears, and there are some things he sees, and there are some things he does. Before we get there, stay with vision. What does that mean? This morning over coffee, I, I said to uh, Cynthia, my wife, um, honey, you ever had a vision? You ever uh, knowingly found yourself transcending time and and having an experience in well as Charles Ryrie puts it in a state of spiritual ecstasy she said I, I don't think I have but I, I have a vision for the ministry the Lord's given us an Insight for Living and uh, I, I I have visions for our family and I have a vision for uh, what the Lord may want to do at the church that we love, and I said, I know, but uh, how about an actual ecstatic time, departed from time, pushing away the limits of day and night and whatever? No, she said, I haven't. She said, Have you? I said, No, I, I, I haven't. So most of us haven't. I, I met a lady following the first service who said, I. I, I was an alcoholic, and she said, when you said what you said about a vision, she said it reminded me of something that I, I, I never mentioned." but she said, in the midst of my alcoholism and smoking a cigarette, she said, I, I, I was at a conference, and I, I was absolutely depressed. I was at the bottom, and she said, in a, in a brief moment of time, uh, I, I transcended all of that, and She said, it was the most peaceful moment I've ever known. She said, I was in a deep depression just before. And then this occurred. I wasn't seeking it. I didn't didn't know anything about what was going on. I I just, it was there. And then I said, well, what what happened? She said, really nothing. It was just a sense of, of overwhelming peace that swept across me. And she said, my depression lifted and it was the turning point in my battle with that, with that uh, disease, that battle with alcohol. I've, I've never had something like that. So I study on it. One man writes, his experience transcended the bounds of normal human apprehension, transported to an ecstatic plane of existence and perception beyond the familiar world, known to all of us. Merrill Longer, in a revised work of his wonderful dictionary, compares a vision with a dream. He says, a dream occurs as we sleep. Living in an earthly body, we have, as the background of our being, a dim region, out of which our thinking labors forth to the daylight, and in which much goes forward, especially in the condition of sleep. Not only many poetical and musical inventions, but moreover, many scientific solutions and spiritual perceptions have been conceived and born from the life of genius, awakened in sleep. I thought of John Bunyan. Remember the early section of Bunyan's work, The Pilgrim's Progress? I'll remind you. As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place where was a den. And I laid me down in that place to sleep, and as I slept, I dreamed a dream. And he tells the story. The Pilgrim's Progress is the result of a dream given to Bunyan while in the Bedford Jail. But this isn't a dream. Unger continues, A vision is a supernatural presentation of certain scenery or circumstances to the mind of a person while awake. John has moved beyond the realm of the familiar and has been escorted, like Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, in his case to the third heaven. John is taken to a place where he witnesses the ethereal. Again, adding to the challenge of his writing, he is now putting what was seen in a vision in the language of his own time so that it would ultimately communicate by God's grace to the language of any time, ours included. And so caught up in this vision, which I have never had, and most of you, no doubt, have never had, and I don't encourage you trying to make it happen. You get funny when you get like that, so don't go there. I don't sense John was looking for it on the Lord's day. I just sense he is in it. And while there, he hears a voice. Behind him, there is a loud voice like the sound of trumpet, circle like. It wasn't a trumpet blast. It was like a trumpet blast. And I take it that it was clear and crisp and penetrating, perhaps commanding. And the voice said, write in a book what you see and send it.
0: You're listening to Insight for Living, and Chuck Swindoll is just getting started with a verse-by-verse study through all 22 chapters of Revelation. To learn more about this ministry or this series, visit us online at insightworld.org. Now, because of the scope of Revelation, Chuck has broken his series into three sections, or acts as he likes to call them— To make sure you hear every single message in this comprehensive verse-by-verse study, I want to remind you that we've made all the audio files for this series readily available online. This makes it possible to hear Chuck's complete sermons from start to finish at your own pace. And you can purchase the complete package by calling us. If you're listening in the U.S., call 800-772-8888. You often hear me explain that it's not the sale of resources that fuel this Bible-teaching ministry. Instead, Insight for Living is made possible through the voluntary donations of folks who share our passion for God's Word and want to share Chuck's teaching with others. And it's working. Let me share a quick example. I was really moved when I read a thank-you note from someone who'd fallen away from their faith but had a resurgence of joy when they discovered Insight for Living. This listener explained his journey nearly ended in personal disaster. And then he added, Your teaching has been nothing less than a life rope for me in the truest sense of the word. He shared that five months ago he lost his job and his ability to financially support Insight for Living. And he added, I write this to you in humility, respect, and gratitude to their fullest extent, along with tears of thankfulness in my eyes. You see, God is using your contributions to restore the faith of people who have lost their way, and we are so grateful for your partnership with us. To give a donation today, call us. If you're listening in the United States, call 800-772-8888. You can also give online at insight.org slash donate. I'm Bill Meyer, inviting you to join us again next time when Chuck Swindoll continues his study in the book of Revelation on Insight for Living. The preceding message, The Curtain Rises, The Drama Begins, was copyrighted in 2003, 2006, and 2024. And the sound recording was copyrighted in 2024 by Charles R. Swindoll, Inc. All rights are reserved worldwide. Duplication of copyrighted material for commercial use is strictly prohibited.